many of the policies that we're still operating under are still racist policies. It's the same lie. 34 years. And they began to recognize that they had been moved from pillar to post. We lost our home, and we also lost our community. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us to listen to Our Fires and the second installment of our audio documentary about the history of displacement in Portland, Oregon. If you're just tuning in, we encourage you to go back one episode and listen to our story featuring O.B. Hill, a local historian and a survivor of the historic Van Port flood. Here in our second installment, we will fast forward about 10 years and hear another personal account of history through the voice of Donna Maxey. Donna is a teacher, activist, and tutor. Specifically with her reoccurring community engagement nights called Race Talks, Donna is a voice of information to those who want to know about the struggle of equity and equality in Portland. Our host, James Dixon, will set the scene. They called it the STEM. For many, it meant the start of something, a community, an identity, a neighborhood. Beginning at Broadway and heading north, Williams Avenue was referred to as the gateway to Portland's black community. The STEM leading to the budding rosebud that was the fastest growing black neighborhood in Oregon. Locals who grew up or remember the area fondly liken it to Black Wall Street, the vibrant heart of Tulsa, Oklahoma before its tragic end. Or remember it simply as the Ave, the center of black businesses, culture, and life in general. So there were a number of homes and businesses and Williams Avenue was a main thread for the community. In fact, it was called the STEM. One of the slang terms for it was the STEM because it was, it was the, you know, the STEM of the black community at that time. Part two, Donna. Hello, I'm Donna Maxey. I am uh, a native Oregonian. I'm the founder executive director of a program called Race Talks. Donna Maxey grew up on North Borthwick, just north of Knott Street. We had a beautiful old home on Borthwick between Knott and Graham, and it was gorgeous. Her parents were local business owners and greatly respected in the community. My father had a business on Williams and Weidler, and if you look when you're crossing over the freeway, if you look to the right about halfway across the on-ramp there, then that was where his barbershop was. And there's a historical picture of him and his barbers. That's on the Martin Luther King Jr. Plaza. For reference, the MLK Gateway is located on Northeast Hancock and Grand. It's a tribute built by Prosper Portland as a way of honoring the displaced communities of Albina. More on that later. Donna speaks of her childhood fondly. She describes it often as idyllic. But perhaps even more idyllic in her memory is the picture she describes of her childhood home. It was gorgeous. It was on two lots. And that's kind of how I started with McMinimans. They asked me to speak about what it was like growing up in Albina. Donna's referencing a regular event she now hosts at McMinimans Kennedy School called Race Talks, a conversation series filling the spaces between race with compassion and education. Go to racetalkspdx.com to look up future conversations. And I spoke about the house that I lived in, and I was thinking, how can I share about our home so that people understand what it was like? Knowing how people are, and in particular white people are, about people of color, in particular African Americans, there's, there's a lot of doubting Thomases. So I thought, if I tell what the house looked like, they're probably going, yeah, 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 mm-hmm. So I decided instead to tell what the flora was 
what kind of plants we had. Because a boxwood shrubbery is a boxwood shrubbery, whether you are black or Asian, white, Latino, Native American. It's still a boxwood shrubbery. So I told about what the plants were like in our house. And it was a beautiful yard, and my mother kept the yard up. She was um, originally lived in the rural area and grew up on a farm. So she enjoyed playing in dirt. <laughs> and uh, so it, it was just a gorgeous, a gorgeous home, hardwood floors, pocket doors, built-in china closets, walk-in closets that used to have slumber parties in. They were so big. Big rooms, solid corridors, lath and plaster. I mean, it was gorgeous. It was gorgeous. Full basement. We used to go and ride our bicycle around. around. We had a, a wooden coal furnace, and so we would ride our bicycle in the wintertime around, <laughs> around, the, around the furnace, and there was that much room. And in addition to that, it was an idyllic childhood. I, I always say that my uh, adult life is payment for having had such a wonderful childhood. It was a beautiful yard. I mean, you walked in, there was, it was all, and there were boxwood shrubberies on the left side that separated us from the Wilsons, carried on, and went all the way to the back. Uh, instead of a fence, we had the boxwood shrubbery. Um, and as you're walking up the walkway, there were two azalea bushes, and you walk further back toward next to the steps and up the steps of the porch, there were two camellia bushes. On either side were two huge walnut trees, and one side was a small yard, and then there were laurel bushes that went all the way to the back of the house. Then on the other side, there were flowers in all the beds, and we had Chinese maples, and we had a, um, a grape arbor, and we had a sun porch. Uh, there was a rose garden. Uh, my favorite, my favorite tree was a blue spruce. We had a huge blue spruce there. There were three peach trees, two plum trees. In the back, there was a, a walkway that went down and a little patch of yard that had a Chinese maple in there, and that was on both sides had boxwood shrubbery, and there was another peach tree on each side of that. There were two plum trees also that were spaced there in the yard. And there was a grass strip that went down both of the driveways. It was just gorgeous. Donna's yard sounds dreamy. Right? As you can tell, she takes pride in this story, these memories of this perfect childhood her family was able to provide for her, and it's clear from her description that her family took pride in their home. Okay, for anyone who is familiar with Portland, the house that Donna's describing is located on North Porthwick between Knott and Graham. You may be scratching your head and thinking, but there aren't houses there. If you take a quick look at a map, what you'll see currently resides there is the I-5 freeway. But how could this be? Enter eminent domain. Noah, will you explain for us what was going on with eminent domain and Donna's childhood home? Sure, James. Yeah. Uh, but let's also dig in a little on what was going on in North and Northeast Portland at this time. So for anyone who is listening to our last episode, they are aware that the Vanport flood, which occurred on Memorial Day 1948, was one of the first big catalysts to the movement of the African-American population in Portland. In fact, it's estimated that the flood pushed 6,000 plus black citizens into the Albina district of North Portland when neither the city council or Henry J. Kaiser would vow to rebuild the city of Vanport. 
Now, as we hinted in episode one, many see the flood as Oregon's first step in its non-committal attitude toward a stable black community in Portland. But it should be noted that in the context of history, Albina before the flood was already a neighborhood in which African-American families were setting down roots. At the turn of the 20th century, most blacks in Portland were living in northwest Portland, where access to the railroad and hospitality jobs were prevalent. But these neighborhoods were becoming increasingly crowded, and to cross the river to Lower Albina, where the railroad docks were still close, was a natural choice. By the time the flood happened, Albina was already a fairly established black neighborhood. It should be pointed out, though, that this was essentially gentrification before it was a buzzword. The blacks moving to Albina had very few options to rent on the west side. The market for them was essentially all run-down apartments and houses and what had been mainly a European immigrant community. And even as many of the whites had found better luck buying in new developing suburbs, the housing authority at that time still made it essentially illegal to sell homes to black families in predominantly white neighborhoods. So many felt as though they had no choice but to move to Albina. Yeah, good point, James. Although property values weren't high in Albina, the community had found a center, and by the 1950s, Williams Avenue in particular had become the business hub of the African-American community. So, Noah, where does eminent domain come in again? Right. A lot of factors here. First off, Portland at this time had been growing. The city saw a huge influx of post-war Americans moving out west, and Portland was a big destination. Suddenly, inner-city housing, inner-city resources, inner-city property were on the plane board again in a huge way. And toward the late 50s, there was a narrative being put into play regarding Albina. I can't imagine it was good. Yeah. Crime on the east side was making headlines in the media, specifically crime in north and northeast Portland. And this narrative also coincided with other important news, the creation of the Portland Development Commission. Ah, yes. The infamous PDC. So infamous that they recently had a name change, correct? Yes. We mentioned them early in the episode. They now go by Prosper Portland. So the PDC get a lot of warranted flack for the development that occurred mid-century in North and Northeast Portland, but it should be noted that they were not the only players. Many city planners and private developers worked alongside each other to build the case that Albina was a rundown, crime-infested, blighted neighborhood. Their plan was to raise as many properties as possible for new construction. So developers basically saw dollar signs for new inner city property that they could get for a song. Yes, exactly. And the city saw an area that could be altered to bring in some big urban infrastructure that would continue to put Portland on the map as a major city. And it started with the Memorial Coliseum. More than 450 homes in southern Albina were leveled in 1956 for the Memorial Coliseum. And the city did this based off of the assumption that this was a blighted area? Yeah, James. Eminent domain. It was a common story in many American cities post-World War II. There was suddenly a bunch of federal money getting handed out to cities who were pushing for urban renewal. But it had to be based off of factual evidence and citizen-driven demand. Hence why the PDC paid for a study to have neighborhoods such as Albina looked at for possible redevelopment. It built the case for urban renewal. The study is the basis for what brought Portland the Rose Quarter, Portland State University, and Lloyd Center. And then meanwhile, the state of Oregon approved construction of Interstate 5 in Albina, one of the major construction projects that claimed whole blocks of the neighborhood. Which gets us back to Donna and how her family reacted to the news that their neighborhood would be changing drastically. Angry. We were aghast. Um, wanting to stop it. There were protests. 
people protested. Uh, I think you've seen some of the signs where there were um, there was happening. Um, you know, people tried to join together to stop it, but it was when I found out about public domain and understood the unfairness of it and how certain people had control and power. And it was uh, very maddening, and I was not very happy about it. No one was that I knew. I mean, what I said is that we lost our church, we lost my dad's business, we lost our home, and we also lost our community. Uh, there are some people I have never seen again. There were people who moved out of town. There were people who were still here in town, but we were scattered to four corners, you know, and I saw someone, oh, it's probably been in the last eight years, I saw a kid that lived around the corner from us, and I hadn't seen him in 50 years. So it was, you know, it was like old home week. I mean, we almost were in tears trying to connect. And... um because we had been good friends and played and, you know, I'd go around to his house or he'd come to mine and, you know, ride bikes and skate, make scooters out of boxes and old skates. And so what did they, what did they do with your house? What, what happened to your house? Oh, they tore it down. The city? Yeah. They tore it down. Uh, we were the last ones to move out of our house because my father said, no, you're not taking my home for next to nothing. And if you put us out, you know, you might have to put us out on the street. We were not leaving because they were trying to give us next to nothing. But, you know, we knew this was coming for five years prior to it actually happening. And what's what's there now? A stanchion for the freeway. And if you're turning up I-5, it's where you come across the... Fremont Bridge and turn, and it kind of comes, it wraps around to join I-5, there is a tree on the right side, and that was one of the trees from our yard. No way. So it's, it's, you can see it. But there's stanchions in the, in the yard. Wow. But it was a beautiful old home, hardwood floors, pocket doors, crystal knobs. In 1962, the Oregon Highway Department demolished over 300 homes in the southern part of the Albina neighborhood to make room for the Interstate 5 freeway, an area that was two-thirds black. The homes were either zoned as blighted and condemned or were bought by the city for less than half their true value. After construction, homes were never rebuilt and families such as Donna's had to take their licks and move on to buying or renting other property that was borderline unaffordable after having to sell to the city at a decreased rate. And it was very traumatic. I mean, I dreamt about that home into my 40s. Whenever I would have a dream about being at home, that was the house where I was. Um, the house we moved into is a big house, but it wasn't home. I mean, that's because our family was broken up. It was then we became a working family. A working family meaning that Donna herself started working a part-time job for her family to help them make the ends meet at the age of 10. I was still took my piano lessons. I still was in Girl Scouts. I still was in church choir. I was still riding my bike and being a kid and playing. 
um, I now had an added responsibility of working. So in a sense, my childhood, my idyllic childhood ended when I was 10. And, and there's some sorrow behind that because, you know, it was never after that kind of that, um, <clears throat> excuse me, that, that freedom for me to just be a kid. You know, if I got if I came home late from school, I couldn't play around after school too much because I had a shift to work. As we mentioned earlier, the building of the freeway was just one of the many ways the state of Oregon, the city of Portland, and the PDC put down policies to dismantle Albina. And still to come was the expansion of Emanuel Hospital, which many historians and community members cite as the most egregious. In 1971, the project to expand the hospital campus in North Portland demolished 22 square blocks in the blackest neighborhood in Portland. Another 180 properties were raised, including 30 commercial business spaces at the epicenter of African-American commerce on North Williams. If you visit North Stanton and Williams Avenue, you will see Dawson Park there, a hub for the black community before Albina's dismantling and one that is still heavily used today. In Dawson Park, you can visit the spire that used to sit atop the Hill Block building, the central landmark for the Black Business District. Today, it now sits upon a gazebo. Sadly, Donna's story isn't uncommon when we talk about the redevelopment of Albina. And what's more, it wasn't the last of the ways Black neighborhoods continued to be disinvested both socially and economically as Portland continued to grow. Redlining, red tagging, population loss, economic stagnation, and the introduction of crack cocaine were all issues that were yet to come when Donna's family lost their childhood home. A look forward to what happened next in Albina, and also a glimpse of hope in present-day Portland. That's on the next episode of Our Fires. It's where you go when you get home. It's where you go when you get home. It's where you go. It's where you go. you've been hearing throughout this episode was brought to you by the Portland Hip Hop Collective, It's Future Time. Special thanks to Anthony DeMarco and Darren Todd for your help and your music. This episode was brought to you in part by the Regional Arts and Culture Council. Big thanks to xray.fm, Open Signal PDX, and KBOO Community Radio for helping us with studio time. This episode was produced by me, Noah Dunham. Our co-host is James Dixon. Consulting producers, Cleo Davis, Donna Maxey, Obi Hill, James Dixon, and Jamal Landers. Sound editing done by Matt Harmon. Special thanks to Ron Atwood, Rebecca Atwood-Youngstrom, Phil Peterson, The Portland Mercury, and Vortex Music Magazine for your kind support of the show. I pray for later, cause looking back could turn me to salt. No actuators in my homeland, so I moved on out. Send home the money like a migrant worker. Watch them all decide to circle. Demons rest on shoulders, vultures teaming to take over my abilities and turn me like a parasite. No, there's no one real as me, but still I face that fear all night. Staring at the ceiling while anxiety threatens to tear me down. My building's bound to fall. Thought that I was strong enough to face it all. But